Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are at the Berg household. We have the Hermansons over and we have the Keens over. Um, it's For 90s. those not in the know, that would be Dr. Carrie Keen, physicist at Wisconsin Lutheran College. And almost Dr. Peter Hermanson. <laughs> the Dr. Hermanson is also in the house, actually outside, watching the children play in the pool. And there's food and all that good stuff, and it's like 90-some degrees. But the reason we got together, the families got together, so that we could, uh, Carrie, Peter, and I could talk about the Stuart Firestein, Firestein or Firestein? I don't know Firestein. how he pronounces it, yeah. Stein. Stein, Stein Firestein. Yeah. Stuart Firestein's book, Ignorance, How It Drives Science. Stuart is a, Stuart, like I know him, is uh, the, a neuroscientist, but he is also the chair of the, or at least was when he wrote this book, the chair of the biology department at Columbia University. And he's going to talk about how maybe the way we think about science, like when you grew up and had this idea about the scientific method, hypothesis, stuff like that, that maybe we should re-examine that. Um, so we're going to talk about this book. Um, before we get any further, though, we should have our disclaimer, and then we'll get into our free-for-all, which is going... Hope, you know, know we're, still in the, we're still in the introduction. Maybe as now, now is the time to like allow Kerry to introduce himself again. It's been a well, while he's since been he's on been on. quite a few times. It's been times. a while, All right. This is the third or fourth time. Yeah. 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 And since we haven't produced anything, Peter, <laughs> um, the last time our listeners have listened to something, it was Brian Kerry's. So, Kerry, Dr. Keene, tell us all about yourself. Oh, okay. Well, uh, so... I'm a physics professor at Wisconsin Lutheran College. I've been there since 2001 now. So That's great. That's boring. Tell us about how you were an all-American gymnast at Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> Our listeners know you do physics, blah, 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 blah. Cornell, male gymnastics. Seriously, tell us about that. <laughs> no, that is true. So I, um, my freshman year at Cornell, I, well, my freshman, sophomore, and junior years at Cornell, I competed on the gymnastics team, and I got all-American. Um, I was third all-around in the Division Three Nationals. Uh, so I got All-American for that, and I got first on Pommel Horse. So um, Why didn't you compete your senior year? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> 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 and I could go on about this for a long time. Well, basically Title IX, right? So um, Male gymnastics got cut. Right, so men's gymnastics at Cornell, along with, I think, seven or eight other men's sports got cut from water polo to, you know, the, I think baseball got cut. But yep. they, mm -hmm. got, they came back, actually. The uh, University had, of Wisconsin doesn't have a baseball yeah, team. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there were a number of men's teams that got that got cut, and we were cut also. It's an interesting story because the the women's team at Cornell also, the women's gymnastics team, got cut uh, simultaneously <laughs> uh, because apparently they wanted to use the gymnasium for, like, a fitness center or something. And as long as there were <laughs> any gymnasts in there, they couldn't use it as a paid fitness center. So they cut both of our programs. And then because there were, I think – 12 men on the men's team and like 14 women on the women's team the women's team came back to s hired a lawyer and came back to sue the college mm -hmm. for um gender discrimination because it dis disproportionately affected women oh, wow. <laughs> so the, the university basically looked at that and said oh we're going to lose this look what happened at brown university a few years back so they let the women's team back. So now the women's team have the entire gymnasium to themselves. <laughs> so the, anyway, all they so needed to do was get Carrie out of the gym, and they were gold. But, did we you great, but we had like you know we were at, we won IVs every year. Not that that's awesome, right? The Ivy League oh, aren't great, yeah. uh, you know, great gymnastics. They're good, you know, respectable. Mm -hmm. But um, but we were we were a good team. We had a lot of fun. But. It lasted for three years. Do you give any, like, do you get letters from, like, feminist organizations for thank you for Say taking one for the for team? <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. No, yeah. Every day. <laughs> all right. It is, it is what it is. Right. right. So, that's right. Yeah. Dr. Carrie Keene, uh, and all your children are here. Tell us about your children. No, really not quickly. all of them. No, oh, that's my right. oldest. Eva that's is right. Gone. So yeah. I have four kids. Eva is the oldest, uh, and she will be starting high school this year, and she is off at a cross-country camp. So she's a runner like her mother. And, uh, so, so we were giving her a hard time about this the other day because we were like, what do you do at a cross-country camp? <laughs> run. Just run. And run Mike more. and I were saying, this seems terrible. <laughs> and it's going to be like 92 degrees. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to be terrible. And humid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then I have Annalise, which is my second daughter. She is going to be in seventh grade. And Iona will be in fifth grade. And Anton, little man, will be in third grade. So, and nice. they're all here out swimming. They're all swimming. Yep. yep. With the Hermansons and yep. some of the Bergs. Yeah. So, excellent. Um, our disclaimer, um, this is a podcast, so, you know, treat it as such. It's a podcast, so don't worry about it. All right. We'll be back with our free for all. Okay.
And we're back with the free-for-all where we wrestle with life's pressing questions and try to answer them once and for all. Today, the uh, question that we're looking at is, what is your most feared dystopian reality? Um, uh, or what is the most likely dystopian reality that you fear? Or like, what words, are we in right now? Well, this we, is what prompted just go it. Yeah. Anywhere. Just go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> this is what prompted it. Um, I said that I don't think it's very 1984-ish, and no, you guys are disagree it's more like 2020 ish but um but orwellian all the same i think that's what you meant that's what <laughs> i understood no no i so. i just think it's i just think it, when someone goes oh i read 1984 this is 1984 you know make orwell fiction <laughs> again i'm like okay I, actually, I think it's more complicated. I actually than shared that. that T-shirt, make Orwell yeah. fiction again, with one of my groups like yeah. recently. <laughs> I, I just don't. I'm I'm surprised at that because I think you'd be really? like, um, I actually know more than that, and it's not technically 1984. Um, it's more like technically. Right. It's, um, right. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So what is so what is your most what's your most feared or what do you think is most likely to be a dystopian reality? And again, this is this is prompted by you know the. Uh, the firestorm that is 2020. So. We should get my oldest Abigail out here because oh. she actually sort of gets this genre more than I do. Has she she's read quite a bit in it then. Or? She has, Good. and she and she's more attract. She's more she she's more like Wade than she is like her father. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Which we're all disappointed about. Yeah, anyway, well, can't win them all. Oliva <laughs> Oliva read. Um, uh, um, Bradbury's, uh, what is it? Uh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451. Yep. Yeah. She read that one last year, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but she hasn't read any other of the major dystopian novels. But she enjoyed it. It took her a little mm-hmm. bit to get into it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Carrie, do you want to start or do you want to punt and well, let us get us get it going? I could say, so, uh, it's been a little while since I've read 1984 or Brave New World. I guess for Fahrenheit 451 I read more recently because that was one of our college reads. But we just, my wife and I just watched this movie by... Tarkovsky, it's a Russian director. It's called The Sacrifice. It's kind of an end of the world scenario, <laughs> and I thought it was kind of neat. But it's basically like World War Three scenario. Um, but my wife told me that was probably the worst movie she's ever seen. <laughs> Wor- worst in what way? <laughs> well, it was. Um, I I thought it was really neat. It's kind of it's very slow, and artistic. You know, the director how how he moves the camera and stuff is really neat. Uh, but um, it was sort of the same genre. Have you seen Melancholia? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. that was a weird movie too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. sort of the same kind of thing. Okay. The end of the world is coming. There's a small group of people getting together and how do we deal with this? And sort of like interpersonal relationships, sort of angst sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I thought it was good, but I don't think that the director really cared whether you liked it or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, I'm going to do my thing. And if you like it, great. If not, well, you know, that's okay. Well, it's okay. interesting. Like, dystopia apocalyptic eschatological type things that genre if you could be really broad Mm -hmm. like even biblically broad about those things uh you know really drives more than what we appreciate what we really always maybe appreciate but it also pulls out like you can it's a genre where you could do oh this is a romantic piece or this is a piece that's going to talk about you know, as you said, kind of uh, interpersonal relationships or whatever. It can be a setting for anything, right? Mm-hmm. But politically, I think when we think about the eschatolog- eschatological type uh, situations in, in theology, that's actually very important because people will often say, oh, it's it's just the people who are fundamentalists. That's a problem with religion. So if you don't take religion so seriously, then everything, we don't have wars, but it's not really people who are fundamental about their religion. It's people who have a, who have a misunderstanding of eschatology. So a Christian who has a misunderstanding of the millennium or like the the Jewish people need to rule that, that homeland before Mm -hmm. Jesus comes. Mm -hmm. This is true of every religion. So it is interesting, and then, and then the dystopia kind of genre. I think it, it there's something human about it, right? Like there's an end. What is the end going to be? And as we get closer to the end, um, we find out something about ourselves that we don't want to find out about, kind of thing. So it is kind of interesting. That's all I'm gonna say. Now you guys go <laughs> and figure out. If we're if we're 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, or something else. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's shocking how much we are 
big parts of all of those. Like, um, you know, and those are the three big ones that I think of, and there are obviously a lot of others out there, but those three, um, I think, have resonated with the American populace, at least for mm-hmm. the last, you know, two generations or so. And uh, the, you know, the 1984, it's all about the government just controlling you and forcing you to believe one thing. And that's that's hard to, like not see right now going on you know i mean the you know Especially the, changing of stories and, right, right no i mean all the the discussion about whether it's you know what what constitutes propaganda and you know um i was in one of my message groups i was i, I messaged re- recently someone was complaining about some story that got changed and i said don't you know we've always been at war with eurasia right you know and that's <laughs> like <laughs> like you 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 told the party line and so that definitely you know as someone who um, I would say more than just leans libertarian. That definitely like resonates with me, and the the concern of government overreach into personal lives until a point where we all kind of become this uh, this whole monolith that has to work together. And some might say like the Borg, if you're familiar with the Star Trek reference, the Borg. So I'm not. <laughs> but the 1984, you know, the idea of okay, we have this this war. We're always fighting this war against. Somebody. Yeah. Right? Well, it's always the same person, although it's not always the same person yeah. or the same entity. It's always the same entity. I mean, generally, this of idea of that, that, that's why I think 1984 probably fit better maybe a little bit earlier in our history. Where I think there's. You mean before we were fighting the longest war yeah, in our nation's history? Or? What I mean is this that. Yeah, well, I, mean, I mean this that there's enough people who are like, that's a stupid war. Not enough to stop it. <laughs> but that's, you know, like, oh my gosh. You know, See, nobody's, actually, nobody's buying that um, Afghanistan or the Taliban or not Afghanistan, Taliban or whatever is, is a legitimate threat right now. That's so much different than when we were in school and we practiced going under a desk because there was could be a Russian bomb. Right. Right. You know what I mean? So, but what's the, okay. So you say like no one believes the Taliban, but do people believe that terror is a real threat? I mean, cause our war is not on Taliban. I mean, it is, you know, in well, sense, I, but I would say in the last five, well, certainly in the last six months, our threat is not, I mean, if you look at the news right now, if you, if you, if you came and watched the news the last six months, you would not even you would not even know that there was a war in Afghanistan. Yeah, I or a fire agree. in Australia. But that's that's or, the whole point of nineteen eighty four. You're right. Okay, you don't even know that that was happening. So, um, Abigail's you, you here. You keep you're going. Gonna, okay, you keep going. So, I'm going to talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> so my point is that the the government for our entire life really has been crafting different wars that we're having and i'm not talking about the wars in iraq and afghanistan even as much as the wars on poverty and the wars on drugs uh, drugs and the war now the war on covid <laughs> yeah we're on COVID. yeah which is i mean trump actually equated this or, or compared this um back in march to world war ii we need to steal ourselves to defeat this enemy mm-hmm. just like we did in in the you know 40s against uh, the nazis and the and the japanese and um that's that's frightening rhetoric, but the thing that's most frightening about it is that, I mean, we are always at war then. And so just like in 1984, they're working through this, you know, oh, this is the war. We've always been at war with this, and which is, which is not to say, I don't think, as I read 1984, that the people actually have to believe that this has always been the war. They have to believe that this is their perpetual enemy, that there is a perpetual enemy. And that, I think, I see. Okay, and we right, see these perpetual enemies, right. and it's not... Unlike in 1984, it's not these people over here. It's this concept. It's terrorism or it's drugs or it's poverty or whatever it might be. But our problem is within, right? Like it's within the nation that here's our enemy. Like we are Sometimes. I mean, terror, I don't think. I think terror is like mostly outside, although then it quickly becomes, you know, weaponized internally as well. I don't well, know. So, nice I, so I'm terror. Like if, if I have to answer the question, what is the most likely, you know, dystopian reality, I would say the government, you know, abridging our freedoms in such a way that, you know, can't really see liberty in there anymore, right? So mm. I was just thinking when, forth, you were saying, <laughs> when you were just saying that, I was, at least we can be sure that, you know, with all these COVID measures and whatnot, they'll be rolled back when it's done, just like the TSA was <laughs> and, home, and Homeland Security was rolled back. I mean, well, that threat is over now. So we've, you know, TSA is gone. We, it, going, air, fl- air flight has gone back to normal, which is really nice. So I'm, I'm pleased with that. And I'm sure that's, 
this stuff will go back to yeah. normal too. Kids won't be wearing masks. I just for well, our I listeners, just, <laughs> I just <laughs> <some> sarcasm. <laughs> I was just gonna say I just dropped my wife off at the airport. She was going on a business trip, and I, you know, went to the took gate, her to the gate, and to gave the her a kiss and said, with you know, roses, right, and yeah, yeah, yeah we right. did all this, and, and then I woke up. <laughs> and then she was she was dressed in a you know a business suit and had a had a had a had a cigarette on the on, on the weather yeah on one of those one of those like extensions for cigarettes right yeah. yeah it was very classy the whole trip down to Paris was, all, it was really classy <laughs> Paris Texas I was wondering why it was all in black and white too do you ever wonder why they have so many signs like do not smoke on airlines like I mean I get that they used to do that fuel leaks I, or what? I get that they used to do that but like. Can't smoke anywhere, right? So really, do I need one for every at every seat? <laughs> really, now? really important that you know you can't smoke at that moment. I was when in, you're trapped I was in a small in, metal tube with a hundred and with, some other people. Within the last two years, I was on an airplane that still had the the little ashtray. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then I'm like, oh, that's that's so nostalgic. How old is this plane? <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to make it? <laughs> I'm more freaked out about... I've always been more freaked out about Brave New World. Than okay, and why so? Like 1984, I'm like, eh, whatever. I've, I actually will agree with you that I think ni- I think Brave New World is more accurate than 1984 in terms and of... And I like think it's scarier because just that, like, it wasn't like an oppressive kind of thing. Like, people are going to give up their freedoms. Mm-hmm. In a certain sense, I think when I think that that's like you, you're just going to be numb and you're going to be like whatever. Yeah, I think that's what's happened largely too. So in 1984 or in Brave New World, I'm sorry, um, my read on that is that the government has been much more crafty in how they get people to willingly give up their freedoms, mm-hmm. and they do it by holding the carrot out, right? Mm-hmm. So they say, oh, we can make life really wonderful for you, and so we're going to turn, you know, in that case, we're going to turn sex into something that has nothing to do with reproduction right, right. state takes care of that we do all of right. that on our own instead it is all about the satisfaction it's about the sensual and we can make that way better and so they've just like tra- uh, diverted the like the att- intention for reproduction and therefore the family to something else and when they've done that everyone's willing willingly following along you know and, and when well, they start getting up at you 1984 just, sex is an active rebellion yeah right yeah no i think 1984 is much more heavy-handed brave new world is much more frightening because the people are just they're willingly doing it you know well, and, and plus it has a the government almost has a philosophical basis to what they're saying like well what is the goal of life if it's happiness then how can we become happy right, right? so there's sort of a resonance that people have to well let's be happy right yeah. and now how can we be happiest well if you taking drugs all your pain goes away and you get sex when you want to i mean what's what's happier than that right so mm-hmm. there's sort of a it's a it's a perversion of the natural order of things but in a way that sounds plausible mm-hmm. yeah well yeah and i think very plausible <laughs> i mean we were just talking about my back problems right and going mm-hmm. in and getting drugs injected into my spine made my life much more you know mm-hmm. livable quite mm-hmm. frankly and if i had lived 100 years ago that wouldn't have been available to me and I would have been sitting in traction for a couple of weeks and maybe it would have been moderately better. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's a, there's a pretty big draw to that sort of like just kind of removal of play, pain and adding pleasure like to life, right. like to say just like that, Hey, that's not a bad thing. So, so. And, and I think one of the benefits when you read a book like that and you're like, well, the point is to be happy. It, it really forces you because you intuitively sense there's something wrong about this. So what exactly is wrong about it? And you have to go back and look at what do we mean by that term happiness? And do we mean the same thing as, you know, ancient philosophy did and so on? I think there's, it forces you to be a little more nuanced about how you're throwing terms around. Sure. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to discern what exactly is wrong with that system. Mm-hmm. So. so going back to the initial question, though, wasn't so much about 1984, Brave New World, mm-hmm. Fahrenheit 451, but rather, like, what are the existential threats that we find as like fodder for dystopian realities. And right now we're dealing with, uh, you know, international worldwide pandemic and we're dealing with, you know, riots and, you know, civil unrest and all of this. And what do you, what do you guys think is going to be, you know, the most likely thing to undo us, whether that's as, you know, humanity or whether that's as a society here in the United States or any thoughts on that? I think what, what worries me is that, justice becomes not about right or wrong or morality 
um, but truly about power, right? I mean, our, our postmodern philosophers and writers and poets have said, you know, it's have have either hinted that this is going to be the case or this should be the case, right? That it's not really about right or wrong; it's about who's in control, mm-hmm. right? And so you're in the right if you're not in control and you are in the wrong if you are in control you have because you have um, oppressed somebody right and i i think that's my biggest fear because you totally lose the concept of forgiveness in that right you live by the law you die by the law so it's a race to who is going to be the most righteous and if that means the most oppressed well what happens if you as the oppressed finally get to the point where you can um, say those other people are wrong well then you have the power then you are going to be wrong right sure and and I think you know French Revolution kind of thing right it just eats itself up so and I I think maybe that's my biggest fear right now because that's exactly what's happening but it's always been in the back of my mind like if you don't ground morality into an absolute, it eats itself up. Hmm. And so it becomes a race to who is the most, who is the biggest victim and who is the most righteous. And within that you have no, there's no concept of forgiveness. Right. I mean, so this is a, this is a gospel thing for me. Right. Um, If I, I hate to use the word cancel culture because that's just a, a buzzword. Well, and it's two words. So. Yeah, that's it's two words. Um, it's a buzzwords. It's a it's a buzzwords. <laughs> it's a buzzwords. But if you start if you start eliminating somebody because of of whatever indiscretion or something they said, you literally eliminate everybody, including yourself, and that's death by the law. So that that's my. That's my. I don't. I don't know what dystopian no- novel addresses that. <laughs> I don't but either. That would but be my thing. I'm going to dox you in the show notes. So anyone who wants Mike's information, I'm going to dox him there. So. <laughs> <laughs> they already know where I live. <laughs> I think one of the things that I, I don't know if I can pin it down to a specific dystopian novel, but one of the things that they have in common is that you're not necessarily fighting one enemy, but you're fighting society in general. You know, like there's sort of this general sense of what everyone should be doing. And so if you disagree with that, you're really against everybody, which is Mm -hmm. utterly frightening, right? And I mean, I'll use the term democracy to to kind of capture this. So... I, w- I was looking at uh just a second. My wife wants my keys. <laughs> okay. So, what could be more so, important than a podcast? Um, I don't know. <laughs> We're podcasting here. So okay. So I'll give an example. Um, the other day I was in the kitchen and we have one of those devices that lets the government listen in on your house all day. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, Amazon Echo, right? Okay. So and I I said, um, you know, Alexa, play good music. Okay. <laughs> just to see what happened. She said. Here are a number of popular songs that are been played by 75% of the people who want it. You know, she gives this dissertation on what the number of people want. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me, I told my kids, this is, this is exactly the point. Like, Alexa can't distinguish what's good music. All she can do is say what most people want mm-hmm. and what most people think is what most people like. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's a, a very important distinction between those two. And I think people tend to equate what most people want with the good and those are totally different categories and i think the blurring of that is is fatal so and I, that that really scares me that people don't distinguish those two things and of course alexa can't you know she's just a robot but yeah. people should be able to whoa 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> um wait a minute <laughs> the, the last but, time we recorded mike told me that he thought that long before ai would kill us we'd kill ourselves and i agreed with that so just to get you on the record do you think that ai will kill us all first or we will kill ourselves first I, I mean, AI has been around for a long time. Yeah. So, so you're, we'll you're probably going to do it ourselves? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> just as long as we're on the same I page. So. I think so. We give too much credit to AI. <laughs> and uh, yes, Alexa's Everything's AI. called AI now. Right? Yeah, so. that, this is true too. I have a big fat book on like, you know, like 
No, it was. It's not called Primer on AI, but it's like <laughs> I haven't read it yet. But I'm like, I really should. I bought it like ten years ago. Right. <laughs> like I really should know this. And it stares at me like, read me, read me. And I'm like, I don't really. Nah. I don't even. Nah. Alexa, mm. should I read this book? Alexa, <laughs> what's it? Alexa, what's AI? <laughs> Shut up, Mike. <laughs> All right, Peter, you gotta right. answer your own question. No, I think. I mean, my my fear is always, you know, government overreach, and that's the, you know, goes back to just my political leaning so when i read dystopian novels i'm always like oh this seems very frightening however um the more interesting and the more nuanced answer there is that um i think we uh, we have certain tendencies as humans that can that can be exploited by other humans or by systems so it's not necessarily by individuals but by systems where we um willingly give up part of our humanity and I think that that's what I see, you know, that's what I fear happening more and more. Um, I don't know what, it, what does it mean to be more or less human necessarily, but I know that there's, I know that there is a reality there. There's something that makes you more or less human and trying to figure that out. I feel like the less we try to figure that out, the, the worse, worse off we are. And I get the sense that power structures that exist are oftentimes trying to steer us away from those sorts of questions. So this is my appeal Go study the liberal arts so that you're asking these questions, but don't be expecting firm answers. <laughs> so I got a question for you guys since, uh, uh, you know, what in our day and age, okay, he, things have changed, blah, blah, blah. What do you see as maybe good about this? Maybe move towards, you know, we would say, oh, this is dystopian because something... What, what is actually kind of good about that? And I, I know that's hard for you libertarians because you're so <laughs> darn negative. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, for instance, am optimistic about the future of the church and not just because Jesus, but because I think that we, as we get out of modernity, even though post-modernity has its challenges, we do leave behind some of the some of the some of the blind spots that we had in modernity. So I'm looking forward to. I, I like the idea that we are challenging what was called truth from either government or science or even the church. Like this is true, mm-hmm. right? And so you had to pick a truth. Either you are a scientist type person or you are a religious type person. You got to choose. Where I think we are challenging both like i'm not just going to listen to science or whatever now that has huge very very bad ramifications you know like with vaccines and stuff like that but i do see a silver lining there that we we are very critical of uh the government experts critical of the media all those things in a lot of cases, it goes way too far, and that's really, really dangerous. But I do kind of like that we are questioning those kinds of things. So I, I maybe I'm being too optimistic here, but do you see a silver lining of our current situation? So first of all, let me back up and say I am also optimistic about the church, but I am optimistic only because, because of Jesus. Of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not so worried I just about didn't want to you be like, all that. I just didn't want to be like, we can just do the same old thing that we always did forever because the gates of Hades will never overcome the church, so I don't have to all leave I, the parking lot. All I lot. heard was, I'm you optimistic I mean? about the church because like we... Don't, we. We don't have to. We don't have to do online church because Jesus. No. Yeah. No, that's what I meant. Right. No, actually, I mean, I would say one of the things that I find really exciting and, and fruitful is just the advent of the internet and the displacement of that center of power and i think we see that in the media right now i mean if you want to get a different point of view it's really easy to do so if you have an internet connection um now there are all kinds of problems that come along with with it absolutely but it's i mean we don't have three stations that the whole nation watches every every uh evening and i think that if you had orwell writing now it would be he would write 1984 very differently not only because it wouldn't be 1984 it'd be like you know 2084 or whatever but because he would like that that world in which he lived where, you know, you had, you could kind of control the outlets of information yeah. doesn't exist anymore. And so I'd say that that's, that, that, um, they call it decentralization has been, has been tremendously it, important. And, and the FCC beneficial. laws that were relaxed perhaps during the Reagan administration, sorry for Reaganites out there, you know, but that you can kind of just say what you want and there's no ramifications of if this is true or not. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, that I was, heard. I heard. I heard that, an f bomb on baseball the other night. That so. was that was kind of a 1984 <laughs> so that, 80s. Yeah. You know that happened in literally 1980 whatever. Yeah. Anyway, Carrie. Hmm. Silver lining, Carrie. Oh gosh. Can I come back to that another time? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. Talk to me in 20 years. So, you know, I call my wife a pessimist, and then she always says I'm a realist. So are you just saying you're a realist? Is no, I, I'm positive about a lot of things. Just when, if we're going to talk about the government's doing, I'm not going to find No, not the government. <laughs> just, just, just generally yeah, so I, right now where everybody's freaking out in 2020, where do you go, hey, yeah. you know what? It's not so bad because of this. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think... Well, some of the things that Peter said with the kind of centrifugal force of, you know, the dissemination of information, I think, is an excellent, excellent thing. And kind of the the attempt to not only do that with information, but with exchange and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, you see a rise of barter systems and things like that where people aren't, people are figuring out ways to do things. And the thing, the fact is, people are extremely ingenious and, you know, you know, God has given us many abilities and everyone's using their abilities. And so I'm, I think... People generally are trying to make ends meet to do things the right way. And um, so I'm encouraged by a lot of individual people and individual small groups and things like that or organizations that are doing good things. But um, but I guess that just takes discernment to, to be one of those, or try to be one of those. Speaking of an ingenious uh, thing, I don't know if you know about the Washington football team how they are no longer called the redskins mm-hmm. that they was, are the washington there, football there team was a, there was a fan there that um got the copyright for all of the possible nicknames for washington i just wanted to know carrie how you what you felt about <laughs> the copyright <laughs> laws <laughs> i'm gonna save carrie on this one say we've been going way too short, long we need short, to get short story i'm opposed to copyright law intellectual property is so, not real property it's not so, scarce so this guy had copyrighted all the po- and he did it actually because he wanted he knew somebody would do this and then hold Washington's football team ransom and he's a big fan and so he's just going to give it to them and I found out later this is his job is that he copyrights names for right. websites Squatter, and it makes right. a love it. and that's then a the whole time I'm like thinking about you Carrie yeah that's just squatting that's you. that's that's I mean it's a it's a way of collecting income yeah. for not doing anything at all that's a whole nother topic. We're going to be back to Stuart. Let's talk <laughs> ignorance. ignorance. which is Stuart Firestein's book, Ignorance, How It Drives Science. He is, or at least at the beginning, when he wrote this book, a neuroscientist at Which was 2012, by the way. 2012. It's a short little book. um, And he was the chair of the biology department at Columbia. So he's definitely got some, he's got some letters and and behind his name that uh, are going to be impressive. And um, he... uh, had this idea about how ignorance really is a good thing when it comes to science and perhaps how the whole thing that we learned in middle school about hypothesis gathering data coming to a conclusion was actually maybe a mistake and then he started kind of a seminar class at Columbia entitled ignorance uh, you know how it how it drives science and would bring in scientists uh, and talk about the things they don't know and how that is a good way to drive science. And he said some provocative things that I think we, you know, Carrie, our, our scientist here, would maybe go, wait a minute, raise an eyebrow and say, hold on about that. But I think there's a lot of things that are intriguing that, that uh, I could hear. There's some things that he said that I could hear you, Carrie, saying, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, so it was an interesting book. Peter had recommended it to me. I read it. And then um, finally put this together so that we could we could record on this. I read it many many uh, months ago, and uh, 
Uh, certainly this is not, although ignorance is, is uh, in my wheelhouse, <laughs> science is not. And so I'm going to let you guys go. So um, who wants to start? Carrie, maybe, maybe what initial thoughts about this book and, uh, and uh, worth a read, that, that kind of thing. Go, go wherever you want. Yeah, I, so I read this this past week. He, I think the author says in the beginning that this should take just a few hours, a couple evenings of reading. That's basically what it takes. And Unless um, you're a slow reader like I am, and then <laughs> you, know, you just kind of plod through it. it but, but he says, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to put all kinds of footnotes, you know, that slows you down. But anyhow, it, it, was, it was a really pleasant read. And he not only is he's obviously a, a very well-esteemed scientist who really understands how work is done in his and other scientific fields. He's done research on other fields as well. And, you know, he, the class he ran just sounds wonderful, uh, where he brought in people from different fields that could explain what they're doing and basically what they're ignorant of, you know. Mm -hmm. He basically brought in other faculty into his class and said, what, what are you ignorant about? And then it just sounds like a fascinating idea for a class. And the book captures that. And it also... Um, it's well written, so lots of little pithy phrases and things that I, you know, I, I wish I could come up with. So one of, one of them at the beginning. So this is based off of his class, and that's called ignorance. So it's mm -hmm. labeled as you know ignorance. And he said, he said he would tell his classes, you need to think very carefully about what sort of grade you want to get in on this class because on your on your report card on your transcript it's going to say you know whatever the numbers are ignorance and then maybe an A or an F. Where do you want to be on that? <laughs> exactly. And then he has little, you know, he he's my well. A, I read his bio also, and he came out of theater. I don't know if you read mm. this. So he, he basically was um, in the discipline of theater. He never went to college until he was like 30. And then he happened to take some courses on biology and neurobiology. I, for, I forget exactly what, um, out in California. And then he went on to get his B Bachelor of Science and then his PhD. And now he's a professor at Columbia. So I think he draws from he, – he has a lot of quotes at his fingertips. And one of the funny ones he had was something along the lines of, you know, I – I, I keep telling people that the brain is the most important part of the body, right? But then I thought to myself, um, what part of my body is telling me that? <laughs> but he, he didn't make up that quote. I think he's quoting yeah, he, somebody he else. But he has described it to a comedian. Exactly, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so he, it's, a, it's a fun read. I really liked it. So nice. Yeah. Give me, give me uh, since you read it most, most recently, I mean, what, what, what is the main thesis of this, uh, of this book? Like, how would you put... You know, it's a it's a purposely provocative title, right? Right, ignorance, um, and and fights against the idea that science knows everything. Science is is just into these facts and everything. Uh, you know, once as we we kind of joke, science says when CNN, right. you know, say, you know, who's the science guy by the way? <laughs> you know, but 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 uh, is more nuanced in his, you know, criticism of that than I would be as a, as a layman. So what would be the main thesis you think of his, of his book? Yeah, I think, I mean, th those, you know, when, when you hear science says, it's like the journalists are attracted to the facts, right? The scientists, I think he's saying, are more attracted to what I don't know, mm -hmm. right? So he says, I mean, no, no disrespect to lawyers, all my lawyer friends that listen to this, I suppose, but, <laughs> but, you know, lawyers are interested in facts. What are the facts? Whereas he points out the scientists really at heart are drawn to what they don't know. And that resonated with me because, you know, I, I think back to some of the research projects that I've had, they, most of them start out with, I don't understand something. Like, I don't even know if anybody else does, but like, I don't understand something. Something's perplexing to me. And I ask a few friends, like, do you know anything about this? You don't, you know, and they'll say, you know, one will say, no, I don't know anything about it. Somebody else will give me an answer. It doesn't sound quite right. And you ask enough questions, you pretty soon you realize it's not just your ignorance. There are a lot of people who are ignorant about this. Mm -hmm. And then that's an opportunity. Once you find out there's something that the answers you're getting don't quite seem to make sense. You know, people are giving you answers that they're glib, they're kind of half-baked. You know there's an area of ignorance there. People don't understand. And at the root of it, that's what scientists, and I wouldn't just say scientists, and he doesn't say this either. He, he, he says this also that researchers are interested in ignorance, whether it's a historian, you know, the story you've been told don't sound quite right. Mm -hmm. There's something missing there, and we're drawn to that. And that that's ex I think that's exactly right. And, and how is that different than the classic, oh, I have a hypothesis that I I come up with this theory, then I find data, and then I find, you know, right. what's the difference there? So he kind of, he, he addresses this, and he says that that's not entirely wrong, of course, but it it paints it in much too, like, 
positive of a light. And so the, the analogy that he uses throughout the book is searching for black cats in dark rooms, right? Mm-hmm. And so he says, your scientists go into a dark, into a black room, pitch black room, and they look for the black cat. And it may not be it there. It may not be there, right? They mm-hmm. don't even know if it's there. And so you can talk about this, you know, I've got this theory, and so here's my hypothesis, and I'm going to try and test it. But he, he argues it's Nobody a whole lot. Nobody actually does that. It's, yeah, well, and it's a whole lot more, um, you know, um, blind groping than, uh, than testing, right? Yeah. And in fact, he, he argues that some of the best scientific discoveries come out of this blind groping and then you find something you weren't looking for. And that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the thing that was really attractive to me is that you're, as you're looking for an answer to something, something else presents itself that you never knew was there or is, or is maybe, you know, um, you know, tangentially related. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just like a, right. um, a, a, a para, uh, a, you know, information to what you're looking at. And then that becomes your main focus and you, you know, I'll have all this, you know. As opposed to saying, I have a hypothesis I'm looking for data, and I really, 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 really want the data to prove my hypothesis. And he's just saying, naturally, we're biased towards being successful. How could we not be, right? So if I have a hypothesis, I want to look at the data, and I'm going to see it. It's like your sports team, right? I mean, you're like, you look at your sports team, and you're going to make an excuse for how this is really, really, yeah, it's going to be okay, right? And and you don't, it's impossible for you to, in another example, look at your children in an unbiased way. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for us to look at our ideas in an unbiased way. But ignorance, you know, when something pops out out of nothing, that, that tends to be a little bit more, that happened to me rather than I'm trying to be in the data and, and looking for it to justify my, my, my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... the. And, and certainly sometimes, like I think you both said, that you do have a hypothesis and you try to figure out whether that's correct or not. And, you know, entire fields of science and mathematics are based on that. Like everyone kind of knows two plus two equals four, right? You kind of have this hunch that that's correct. And yet mathematicians spend an inordinate amount of time trying to go into number theory. What do we mean by two? What do we mean by two? What do we mean by addition? And so on. And, and there's people spend their lives trying to prove something that they pretty much already know is true. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But I, I liked how he said, when you, when you, you have some idea of what you want to study, you write a grant proposal, you get some funding from some government agency. And then in the process of doing that, more times than not, you end up researching something different because you're looking at something in the laboratory, something strange happens, and then it spawns a different area of research that you had no idea. And you know, that you're, that, that happens a lot where people are just working on one project and something else comes up and it, it takes a certain receptiveness, mm-hmm. you know, and that's another thing that he, there's a story that he tells at the end of the book, I don't know, two thirds of the way through the book about uh, this woman, Rice, I think is her name, uh, and she was studying dolphins or animals and how, you know, you can try to make animals do certain things, you kind of set up these parameters, but you're really constraining them when you do that. But at some point she was trying to determine if, animals have this capacity for language or, or thought and suddenly it appeared to her that by something one of the animals did it was thinking mm-hmm. you know and and it's not something that she carefully crafted this experiment to demonstrate this but it came out of nowhere was it and was you it, couldn't it wasn't you can't attach a number to it yeah right was it that they were self-aware like they could recognize themselves in the mirror or something there was that one but then there was the one where she would give i think a dolphin a timeout like she wouldn't basically if it wouldn't do what she wanted and then the dolphin suddenly one time she fed the dolphin the wrong thing inadvertently and then the dolphin swam away and like gave her a timeout (laughs) and she's like well i didn't see that coming you know it's just it's weird stuff like that that suddenly and you can't put a number on it you can't quantify that right so it's it's a it's a sudden realization, and that's where he talks about there's sort of this Zen-like approach to scientific research, and you might even say it's just receptive or monastic, even mm-hmm. like where you're not you're not using ratio, kind of this working at it, but rather you're letting you're being receptive to nature and mm-hmm. you're allowing things to come to you, mm-hmm. and then being able to see them when they come, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's a lot more of that in science, at least good science, than people people think of it as this logically rigid thing, but a lot more of it is just re- being receptive and inquisitive. And I would say that there is a difference between modernity and then kind of more holistic approach, which would be more akin to either pre-modern or a post-modernity. That's why in the free-for-all account, 
kind of optimistic about in certain ways about this that it's not just a like you said at ratio a rigid kind of way of looking it's intellectus at this. Yeah. Right. yeah and and he and it's funny because he he says that you know he uses the word as almost zen like where you're you're allowing things to come to you but the first half of the book he's kind of criticizing earlier kind of church sort of stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> okay mm-hmm. But I would say this is exactly kind of a, a monastic kind of a way that people were thinking about things before modernity mm-hmm. is this a little bit more holistic and receptive, which this is where I would, I guess I would criticize Feierstein and some of the things he's doing. He's kind of fi- falling into these tropes about the scientific revolution and how basically we've been doing science for 15 or 20 generations yeah. now, yeah. as yeah. if yeah. before Galileo, we, there was no, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that I find that tiresome and, and, and false and ill-informed. And he should know better. He should know better. I mean, if, if anybody right. should know better, it should be him. Right. Well, and, yeah. and one of the things that as I'm reading it, I keep thinking about Thomas Kuhn's scientific revolutions and his, like, are you familiar with that theory? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Yep. So he's, it reminds me of that, but that surprises me then because I th- one of the things I really like about Kuhn is that he traces science all the way back to the pre-Socratics and mm-hmm. says, this is, we don't really know where it starts, right? But it's somewhere out here. And so he talks about all of these revolutions in science that happen throughout and he just kind of creates that continuum, which uh, is always attractive to me because I see this as something that, you know, is like a um, something that's continued to, to grow or change, th- you know, over far more times it didn't it didn't start in the 16th century you know i mean right i mean it's not like people (coughs) didn't know how to didn't test out baking techniques before then or make paint you know i mean like these these people had to work really hard to try to do you know building cathedrals or making paint or baking bread or making beer or whatever like there's a large amount of scientific research that goes into that and to kind of dismiss that stuff and say well that was pre-modern and people started doing science with galileo that's, that's just tiresome or yeah. more likely with bacon, but yeah. I mean, or, or Descartes. I think he traces it back to Descartes, yeah. right? So, <laughs> yeah. and the more we know, the more we realize how smart these ancients were, right? Yeah. I mean, well, and we, I think we, we get over that that hubris. I think pretty quickly if you if you're attuned to what's going on in academia in general, I think you pretty well. It doesn't take long for you to get over the modern hubris. Well, and that's what I th- what I like about his book is that he's he's arguing for you know, like doing away with the hubris of science because it actually stunts science. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, it's kind of like, well, really? Like, so at, the, at that moment, you have a blind spot. Although I don't know that Feierstein would actually, you know, bristle at that critique even necessarily. I think yeah. he might say, I might say, yeah, you're, I mean, I've got blind spots too. Like, right. you're, you know, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, he just seems like, he seems more open to this. this right. And, and thinking the, about the, it, so. the exact example that I think brings us out is his his. You know, there's this idea that you can't do biology if you if you're not an evolutionist, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, what, think what you may have evolution, but you can't. But it's demonstrably true. Like people were doing biology, bi- biological research before anybody thought about evolution, right? And you know, he he mentions something to the effect that unless you believe that um, there's a commonality by inheritance of of you know, like apes to humans, you're not going to like use apes as a study uh, as to study in order to apply that to humans. Well, I mean, people have been comparing humans to animals since Aesop, you know, or right, earlier, right. right? And saying well, no, like, you, you can, can learn back. about humans by looking at animals and you can learn about animals. But so there's right. this sort of like relationship that you can learn about human behavior from animals is not something that was discovered when people came up with evolution. Sure. So, and I mean, Aristotle's categories is like, that's what it's based on is that we're going to categorize things in less and less specific ways. Right. And so you're linking everything together in that way. Well, 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 before right. So there can be links besides theory. common yeah. descent. I guess that's the point. And he's saying basically you can't make links unless you believe in common descent. Yeah. Now, I mean, you, you, you may or may not believe in common descent, but you certainly can make links mm-hmm. even if you don't. And people have throughout history. So. Yeah. So anything else, uh, we got about 12 minutes, uh, anything else that in your notes that you wanted to talk about that you thought was, I mean, top three things about this book that you thought maybe were were valuable to to yourself or to us or to our listeners? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah so a couple of, like, I thought one of the best chapters where he was talking about um, specific kind of strategies for cultivating ignorance or t- using ignorance to to learn. And, um, you know, one of the points he makes is that you have to have an attention to detail, 
right? So, and on the on the bad side of things, just adding one more decimal point to some number that's already known. You know, like the, you know the speed of light. If, you know, you, if you know it to eight decimal points, you do research, spend your whole life adding that extra decimal point. That's you know it sounds kind of mundane, but but you know the the attention to detail oftentimes is when you start seeing things more carefully. You have to be very careful, and and then. In looking very carefully at something, you see anomalies, and those often lead to completely new ways of thinking about it. And that's not merely in science. I think you, you know, theologians pay extraordinary detail to the meaning of this Greek word, and that you know how you interpret a particular word can have radical implications on how you understand a text, right? So that sort of attention to to very careful attention to detail is just as important in science as theology, as in history, as in poetry, or whatever. And, and, and I think that's a, a great point. And being able to be again, humble enough to towards those people in history who have gone before you, but also being like, maybe this is groupthink. Maybe we are thinking in the same way and say, I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's one thing that stood out to me. Just piggybacking on that, and this is going to be, I don't know how far we're in we are, but I'm going to mention Nietzsche. So I feel like it's, it's worth noting. 15 minutes, <laughs> minutes in. Your record, your best. <laughs> but in uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, you've got this like ascending into the ubermension. So, you know, like you, and the first one that you start at is, is the, he refers to him as the leech. And it's a scientist that studies the brain of a leech. And he's become so focused on this, you know, tiny little part of the corner of the universe. And that is, he's an expert on that. And, um, Zarathustra bumps into him and he gets all upset until he realizes it's Zarathustra. He's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know it was you. But he's upset because he's disturbed his research. And this is where you say like adding a decimal point of knowledge. And so Nietzsche's argument is, yes, this person is an ubermensch. He's like, there's a superior sort of knowledge here that this person has. However, it's trifling, right? I mean, like you need to move up. And so you go up another six levels or whatever until you actually get to the, you know, Mm -hmm. to Zarathustra. And, uh, um, that's what when he's making that critique i think yeah this is there's something really kind of it takes a a tremendous amount of focus and ability to be able to add that decimal point there and yet you're kind of missing the whole you know the whole forest by studying that tree in a sense Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i just yeah i I was just looking for a reason to Mm -hmm. talk nietzsche actually (laughs) (laughs) um and then i guess maybe one or two other things so his 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 talk about using model systems. I guess this is goes back to the example of the relationship between um, animal, you know, non-human animals and human animals. Okay, um, is that you're using, you're not studying actually what you want to study, but you're studying something else in hopes that will give you in, insight into what you actually want to learn about. You know, so using these model systems. So, um, an example. I mean, in in my research laboratory, I look at soap films not because i just love blowing bubbles although it is pretty cool to blow <laughs> bubbles right but but because carrie does have four kids right? So. <laughs> right? so like let's just blow bubbles you know i tell people i do work on bubbles they think they kind of look askance like can't you do like superconductivity right, or right, right, you know, gravitational gravitational wave detection or we something can't, we can't wait for that book dr <laughs> <laughs> all right but because like when you study like soap films you're studying a very thin fluid layer which has analogies in atmospheric studies like how atmospheres flow across a planet you know or you know or two-dimensional fluids very thin fluids that are being used in drug delivery systems well, not and so technically on. two-dimensional though i mean they're, right? they're exactly so quasi <laughs> two-dimensional <laughs> things. Uh, right, exactly so i mean i thought that was he i like that he gives a snapshot in of how scientists actually use these sort of techniques approaches to take go from questions and then cultivating their ignorance and then how it actually kind of works out in the lab. I thought he did a great job with yeah, that. And ab- about half of the book is like his case histories where mm-hmm. he talks about that. I find that, I found that very compelling too. It's just yeah. more enjoyable read for me, you know, someone who's right. trained not in the sciences, but you know, it's, you know, just kind yeah. of understanding like, oh, this is how people, you know, like found this, or this is what they're looking at in this area. I, I've, you know, I've been on this podcast like three or four times, so I, know, I always forget what stories I've told before, but one of the things he, I might've said this, so forgive me, if okay. I, you can edit it out, That's I guess. Okay. <laughs> but like one of the ones he talks about is Albert Michelson um, and the lack of discovery of the ether. Okay, that was mm-hmm. one of the early stories. So Michelson is a very, he's the first American to win the Nobel Prize in physics. Early um, 20th century, roughly. Right, that? exactly. Yeah. So he did his experiments in like 1890s, 1896 mm-hmm. or so. I think he got his Nobel Prize in like 1907. I think he said 1907. I don't remember the number. but um, And so it's funny because 
the, the idea at the time was there's this ethereal ether medium filling all of space, and that's basically how light travels and so on and so on. And, the, and the, just to step back one step for our non-science listeners, this is because things need to have a medium through which to pass, right? Exactly. That it has so, to have, so, so we right. can't understand motion if there's not some sort of ether, some sort of right. medium. So it's like, okay, I tell my students, you know, you see a wave on the pond, right? There's a wave on the pond. Now imagine the wave on the pond, but with no pond. It's like, well, okay, so you need to have water to yep. do the wave. You know, you can do a wave in the soccer stadium, right? You can picture that, everyone doing the wave. Now take away all the fans. Now imagine the wave. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, in most situations, you can't picture waves without something doing the waving, right? So the idea is if there's light and light's a wave, we all agree with this, right? In the 18, late 1800s, there must be something doing the waving. There's this ether. We can't see it, but it's got to be there because every other case where there's a wave, there's something doing the waving. So it's not ridiculous. It's, it's a reasonable assumption. Anyhow, Michelson basically does this experiment that subsequently is, is said to prove the ether doesn't exist. And Feierstein's right about that. Like his 1896, he didn't find the ether, and after that, people start rejecting ether. The hilarious thing that Feierstein doesn't point out, if you actually read Michelson's paper, Michelson says, I didn't find the ether, but darn it, ether exists. And he <laughs> actually doubles down and says, in fact, we know more about ether than atoms. We know more. And, oh. and so he just completely takes the exact opposite interpretation of the experiment that we're told oh. is the result of his experiment. So it's just, it's even funnier than Firestein points out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. so. No, I think about that in the, in, when I, um, when I took a class in graduate school, it was philosophy of science, philosophy and history of science. And we talked about that a fair amount. And I, you know, I mean, the professor pointed that out quite a bit, you yeah. know, that this is kind of a humorous situation if you stop and think about it. Right. So when I, when I get onto CNN and it says science says, <laughs> right, what, how should I, as a layman, think about that phrase. You're on CNN. So I am. I'm on <laughs> CNN.com. Yeah, yeah. So when I see science says, what I do is I just take a picture of Carrie and put it over science. <laughs> and so Carrie says some ridiculous things. <laughs> just make it plural. Sciences. One of the sciences. It's, a, it's yeah. like but maths. We've, we've well, talked so, about so science means wisdom. So, I mean, yeah. I think it means wisdom. Yeah. So do you want to be wise or not? No, I don't. And I'm not. <laughs> I want to be ignorant as... Feierstein says. But I, I think it's very important for people to understand that, uh, you know, we have this idea of religion versus science, right? We have this idea that once, you know, a scientist has discovered something or whatever, that's it. You know, we don't, we figure that out onto the next thing. And, and the reality is not only uh, much more nuanced, but much more exciting. Yes. And maybe you can talk to that in our final couple minutes. Yeah. One, one of the things that he says is that he, or he knows a professor who recommends students not to read, well, they can read the most recent papers, but you're going to find better ideas for what to study by reading 10-year-old papers because everybody is studying the implications of the paper that just came out in physical review letters, but everyone's forgotten about what was published 15 years ago. So you read some of those and now our technology is better and so on. We can go back and evaluate some of the things that they were thinking about. And it might even be more um, productive to do that. And I would go even farther. I'd say go back 150, 250 mm. years and look at some of the things that they were thinking about then that we've completely forgotten about or we don't even talk about anymore. And or think about it a completely different way. Or, or yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And and that's that's where things I think get really fascinating. Not just as far as what what they were observing about nature, but even their categories in which they were thinking about nature and what science is, and you know what kind of entities are you allowed to talk about when you're talking about science, uh, and just even the definition of science. And I think those are some really fascinating questions and uh, should be paid more attention to. I like it. I've Last nothing, word, Peter. Yeah, I've got nothing to add to that. I guess, um, you know, the Carrie asked me when we started, he said, so, you know, where did you come across this book? And I, years ago, probably when it first came out in 2012, I had a, I was at a fundraiser for uh, like a Mother's Day Out program we had one of our kids at. It was just so they're like um, annual auction. And there was a lady that was sitting at my table and she said, what are you studying? I was in graduate school at the time and I told her. And at that point, I think it was probably in this uh, um, history of 
the history and philosophy of science class. And so I was kind of talking about that. And I definitely had my dissertation topic picked out and everything. And she's like, oh, you've got to read this book. I just read it. It's great. So I put it on my you know, wish list for my family for Christmas, birthdays, whatever. And it sat there and sat there and sat there. And in 2019, for Christmas, my mother-in-law got it for me. And she said, I've seen it on there for years. I figured, you know, I should probably get it <laughs> off. It's still there. So I got it. And then Mike saw it on my coffee table before I'd even read probably 30 pages of it. And he ordered it while sitting at my house. And then he you know, lent it to Carrie. And so that's kind of how he ended up ended up here. But the thing that's really interesting to me about this and what interests me about science as a non-scientist is this idea that there are all these questions out there that we're looking for and we're searching for for answers to better understand what we have. And yet, you know, how do we how do we stave off this hubris then that comes as a natural, you know, natural consequence of thinking that you have answers. And uh, this happens not only in science, this happens mm-hmm. in theology as well. It happens in, I think, every field of study. But in science, it becomes really the stakes are higher, at least now, because the the popular culture just buys it. Like science says, as there's as a lot of money saying. involved yep. too. Yeah. yeah, and so to come back and to to kind of reground and say, no, no, science is searching for answers, but it's not about the answers. It's actually about the questions. That to me is terribly compelling. And you know, I mean, Carrie, one of the things that if I had finished my dissertation and you know become you know like actually been a professor and done that, like one of the things I really wanted to do was teach a class with you on philosophy and mm-hmm. history of science to get through to go through these sorts of questions because i just find them you know endlessly interesting so that's why that's why it was sitting on my coffee table that's why i guess we're sitting here today oh well, you uh, just need to finish your, your dissertation yeah, <laughs> we keep telling him but uh, you know um maybe making too much money yeah. not, not that you're rich but you know no you don't have to be rich. To There's be a little bit more security in than, what I'm doing uh, now. Yeah, than being a philosophy <laughs> for some, professor. For some reason, computers seem to keep uh, keep having a, a marketplace. I wonder why. But not philosophy. Not really. <laughs> I haven't found that to be that the case. Is, that is a crying shame. We will all agree. So, last word, Carrie. You got anything for us? Uh, no, I, I think this is a great book. I think you should read it. Yeah, it's a cheap one, cheap nice, one, yep. easy read, and he, he, like you said, he's a very good writer, and so just to get you thinking. One so. more thing before we go, though. So I've got on the podcast, on my podcast here, um, Carrie Keen and Mike Berg, who are the co-founders of Black Earth Apologetics. Yeah. And we should just say something about that real quick. I know we had to cancel it this year because of COVID-19 and all sorts of things, but y'all should talk about that and tell our listeners what, what it is so and what you're planning n- to do So next summer, come to, w- come to Milwaukee, WLC. It'll be a week long. Probably in June, we don't have the dates uh, just yet, um, for one week uh, uh, crash course in apologetics. And then we're hopefully, uh, it, this is all but guaranteed, Luke Thompson from Ottawa is going to come and talk sort of about, um, not postmodernism is not the right way to think about it, but mapping how yes. we look at... Cultural apologetics? Yeah, maybe. cultural apologetics. I think it'll be interesting. He's written a couple books and, and he's going to be great. And so uh, keep us in mind. What's our website? Uh, bl- uh, com. Explain Black Earth for our yeah. For so that uh, yeah. So that's Melanchthon. So yeah. Melanchthon is one of the, you know Schwarzfeld, uh, uh, a groupie of Martin Luther. He was yeah. a classics professor yeah. uh, at University of Wittenberg and a uh, very learned guy. And took, and you have took, an interest in kind of how they did science in Wittenberg. Yeah, at that, yeah. That you know, the relationship between theology science. They weren't afraid. They put it that way. They weren't afraid of engaging issues of the relationship between theology and science and culture. And I think that's a great position to take. And we would like to emulate that. And And Melanchthon is actually one of the preeminent um, uh, uh, humanities professors at the time. So, like, you've Mm -hmm. got him and Erasmus are probably the top two Mm -hmm. in his generation, I would say, Mm -hmm. maybe. And so... I mean, he's, you know, I mean, this is a, this is a very, very smart guy, right-hand man for Luther. He writes mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. So, yeah. So why, why black earth though? We still haven't explained well, that. Cause, um, oh, but yeah. So Chthon is earth and Melee is, yeah. is black, yeah. right? Yeah. So the, his name actually means black earth. So it was originally Schwarzfeld or whatever. Which would be German. Yeah. would be German. And, and then gr- aggressified. Great. And yeah, the, yeah. I don't know what the, what the verb is Grecian, for that. But, Grecian uh, Grecian, he Grecianed it um, <laughs> as many would, many would do. And so he became Melanchthon, which sounds a lot more important than or as the Schwarzfeld. Melanchthon. Yeah, Melanchthon. <laughs> um, but I was going to add to it, not, not only um, did he not think that was, not afraid to mix those things, they didn't know they were supposed to be afraid to mix those things. Right? And so I think that's kind of the what we mean by the free arts, the liberal arts, to think about these things, or at least part of it. And so um, with the gospel... Um, go live, go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Every evening when the sun goes down, 
getting my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. One more round won't get me down. Lush, my face began to fuss and I said, honey, I don't care.